Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We're on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, Malawi's opposition MPs boycott parliament and Somalia conference gives hope for secure future. In economics news, efforts are underway to fix Africa's port and logistics systems and in sports news, Russia banned from 2018 Winter Olympics. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. A military operation in western Cameroon has led to hundreds of people fleeing their villages. The exodus comes after the government pledged to retaliate against an armed group that wants independence for the country's two English-speaking regions. Most people in Cameroon speak French. The BBC's Alex Duval-Smith has more. People are arriving in the towns of Bamenda and Kumfa. Others have crossed the border into Nigeria where they have relatives. They've told BBC correspondents that they're fleeing a military offensive. The government had warned it would clamp down on the secessionist Ambazonia Defence Forces. The group has boasted of killing ten soldiers and police. Nigerian migrants have expressed relief as they arrived home from Libya, describing the harsh conditions in detention camps where they had been held. African heads of state have condemned the treatment of undocumented migrants in Libya, including widespread violence and apparent slave trading. The 104 retainees who touched down late on Tuesday are part of a repatriation program that Nigeria has stepped up in recent months. The United Nations has urged Libya to agree to shut down 30 centers, holding 15,000 migrants whose detention has become a pressing issue after video footage showing African men sold in Libyan slave auctions sparked global outrage. The leader of South Africa's opposition, UDM, Bantu Holomisa, says state capture and corruption in the state are an insult to the legacy of the late former President Nelson Mandela. Mandela's legacy. Holomisa was speaking in Johannesburg at an event to mark the fourth anniversary of Mandela's passing. The comments come as public outrage continues to grow over the apparent involvement of the politically connected Gupta family in the appointment of key cabinet ministers in exchange for preferential treatment in its business dealings with government. Former public protector Tulima Donsela investigated the allegations and recommended that President Jacob Zuma set up an inquiry to be headed by an independent judge. Olomisa says Mandela's legacy of reforms and institution building is under threat. Mandela understood the need to, to build strong independent institutions that would enjoy and serve the people regardless of who would be in power. The travesty of the so-called state capture has hollowed out many of these state institutions. This is an insult to Madiba's legacy. State capture must not only be pushed in, into retreat, but must be defeated once and for all. Those who are captured should be charged, prosecuted and convicted. Frankly speaking, if we don't do so, Madiba's legacy will be in jeopardy. U.S. President Donald Trump is expected to officially recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. 
This has alarmed leaders in the Middle East and raised concern at the United Nations. Washington's move could throw hopes of salvaging the two-state solution into disarray. Palestinian officials have confirmed that Trump has informed them about his decision, which they say could end the peace process. Sean Bryce Peace reports. Jerusalem remains a final status issue, a city of historic significance to Jews, Muslims and Christians, with both Israel and the future state of Palestine claiming at least part of the city as their capital. The UN Secretary General spokesperson warned that any unilateral actions could have the potential to undermine the two-state solution. Moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem was an election campaign promise of Trump, but Palestinian officials have warned it could permanently undermine any hopes of a negotiated settlement between the two sides. The European Union says the status of Jerusalem must be decided through negotiations and called for actions that would undermine a return to negotiations. And finally, security experts from West Africa, France and the United States have gathered in Abidjan for talks on beefing up anti-terrorism measures at sea in the Gulf of Guinea. The three-day seminar seeks to identify terrorism risks in the Gulf of Guinea, the vast expanse of water stretching from Liberia to Gabon, and any link with terrorists in the Sahel. The Gulf of Guinea is one of Africa's hotspots for crime, ranging from piracy, armed robbery and illegal fishing to oil theft and trafficking in stolen goods. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and Somalia's leaders are committed to ensuring a safe and sustainable future for the country's people, but no one should be under any illusion that this may take a long time, a senior UN official said on Tuesday. Michael Keating, the special representative of the Secretary General for Somalia and head of UN mission UNSOM, has been speaking from the capital, Mogadishu, where a security and humanitarian conference is underway. Amid plans to draw down troops from the African Union mission AMISOM stationed in Somalia and boost Somali forces. Keating told UN Radio's Daniel Johnson how political leaders have shown their willingness to continue military reforms. The security conference was centered on the imperative of having two things in place as soon as possible. One is a plan for the transition of lead security responsibility from the African Union to the Somalis. At the moment, there are 22,000 Amazon troops. And is there sufficient capacity there to relieve that load? Not at the moment, no. So that's the whole point of the gradual transition plan. I was going to say the second part of it is the need to strengthen the Somali security forces. And the key point that was made is that this is as much a political as a technical endeavor, because until the Somalis can reach a very strong political agreement, given 30 years of conflict, the absence of institutions and levels of distrust, they have to reach clear political understandings as to the basis upon which they're going to rebuild their army and their police force, their intelligence services and their maritime, plus recognize that security is not just about military activities, it's about community policing, it's about local governance, it's about rule of law, it's about addressing violent extremism. So it's quite an ambitious conference. And as I say, the the central concept is that over the coming years, there should be a conditions-based transition from Amazon to the Somalis, bearing in mind that Amazon cannot stay forever. They've been here 10 years already. That the funding for Amazon, whether it's through the UN or to voluntary contributions mostly coming from the EU, that cannot come forever. So there's got to be a horizon. Maybe you could give me a key security and development project that might be extended to the rest of the country or parts of the country so that uh, uh, we can get a grasp of really what needs to be done. There are certain locations in the country, not many so far, where Amazon 
has actually drawn down and responsibility for security has then been assumed by local actors. And in order for them to step into that space created by the departure of Amazon, they have to reach a clear understanding on roles and responsibilities. Now, this has been done on a small scale. It needs to be taken to a large scale. But no one is under any illusions as to how long this is going to take. I guess the next question is the money. Funding is being drawn down. Uh, Amazon want to leave. There's, there's a lack of money and investment for this crucial plan. I mean, at the moment, something like $1.2 billion is being spent on the formal security sector in Somalia, either Amazon or the Somali security forces. About a billion of that goes to Amazon. And so the challenge there for Somalia is how does it start raising the revenues to pay its own way? How does it start raising the revenues to pay for its police force and its army? And the only way it can do that is, number one, raising taxes, which means providing security to the private sector so that they are willing to pay taxes. So that's a big discussion going on. And the other is to normalize its relationship with the IFIs, the international financial institutions. You know, Somalis are among the most entrepreneurial people on the earth. They've got networks in North America, South Africa, the Gulf, Australia, South Asia, Kenya. It's, it's an extraordinary global network. And they've got great agriculture, they've got great fisheries, they've got telecoms, they've got banking, money transfer operations. But the political instability, the absence of institutions, the lack of trust has completely undermined uh, this and that's what we've got to sort out. That was Michael Keating, the special representative of the UN Secretary General for Somalia, speaking to Daniel Johnson. It's 8:11 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Let's go back in time to today in 1865. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolishing slavery was ratified as Georgia became the 27th state to endorse it. That's today in history in the year 1865. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa And our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Malawi's opposition members of parliament have boycotted the current sitting for two days in a bid to pressure government to table the electoral reforms bill. The opposition, backed by religious groups and human rights activists, feel government does not want to table the bill despite agreement to do so before the sitting. Channel Africa's George Mango has more from Blantyre. To many Malawians, the electoral reforms bills, if enacted, shall mean that the president will have to amass 50 plus 1 votes to be declared winner as opposed to the current situation. Secondly, that 30 days have to elapse before the swearing-in ceremony of the president and his vice, who are both voted into power through a ballot. The boycott on Monday and Tuesday was led by leader of opposition Lazarus Chakwira with the backing of various religious groupings for President Peter Mutarika and his government to consider tabling such bills. Chakwira, who is also president of the main opposition Malay Congress Party, justifies his stand on behalf of the opposition. Goalpost-shifting kind of tactics is not good. I give him sufficient uh, trust, but they are betraying that trust. You remember that I told Malawians that uh, let's, let's wait on them until the two weeks is over. But the two weeks have come and gone, and now this is the fourth week that uh, we're meeting. And um, I've seen nothing, not even uh, notice of uh, 
upcoming business and so forth. So until we see that, um, uh, then we will know that their promises can be trusted. So far, they cannot be trusted. However, government has maintained that such bills will be discussed at an opportune time. It is not clearly known as to when, but the current sitting is likely to rise next week. Leader of government in parliament, Konrad Nankuma, blasts the opposition for the boycott. To boycott uh, the house today, that we need the business committee uh, to take place today, uh, is uncalled for. And um, I think uh, uh, what we need to know is that uh, each and every meeting has got its own, own agenda. We could have gone to the meeting, to the business committee meeting, an abrupt one without an agenda. That's disorderly. That's not according to our standing order. So it's um, something uh, bad, it's something that we are failing to understand. Malawi follows the first past the post system of choosing the president and swearing in takes place within hours which critics say is not democratic. Last week, the Public Affairs Committee PAC, a grouping of various religious bodies in Malawi, petitioned the Mutarikan Speaker of Parliament to table the bills now, but to no avail. PAC, through its membership, has since asked people to demonstrate in protest against failure to table the electoral bills. Such protests have since been scheduled for December 13 across the country with religious groupings which have had efforts to table the bills likely thwarted. Analysts want Malawi to use the new law of choosing the president and swearing in ceremony when Malawi goes to the polls. With delays to pass the bills, fears of voter apathy are likely. George Mohango Blanta. It's day 16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. South Africa's ruling African National Congress says it will welcome any probe into whether pay TV company MultiChoice engaged in a corrupt and unethical conduct to influence government policy over digital migration. This follows damning revelations that multi-choice executives sought to pay the state broadcaster, the SABC, 7.4 million U.S. dollars and the Gupta-owned TV network ANN7 allegedly in exchange for its political influence over government's position on set-top boxes. Yesterday, the ANC Subcommittee on Communications and Battle of Ideas presented an update on a discussion document focusing on media transformation ahead of the December 16th National Elective Conference. Tsepoy Ganeng has more. The African media and e-commerce giant Naspera said it would investigate claims of improper payments made to the SABC and the Gupta-owned TV channel AN7. The controversy was further fueled by claims made by former communications minister Eunice Karim that the chairman of the multi-choice parent company Naspers, Gus Berger, had tried to coerce him to change government position on digital migration to benefit the pay TV channel. Briefing the media at the party's headquarters in Johannesburg, the ANC's chairperson of the communications subcommittee, Jackson Mutembu, said the multi-choice saga should be investigated with the same vigor as the ongoing probes into alleged state capture into state-owned enterprises like ESCOM and Transnet. If there were any attempts to influence negatively government policy by anybody, that matter should be investigated and all those who might have done things not in accordance with our stated objectives must be called to account after a proper investigation. If we, we want to call that state capture, I have no problem. Because if you want to benefit and you then want to influence government policy towards your benefit as a private citizen or corporate citizen. Indeed, you might be trying to capture the state for your own purposes. Indeed, one might agree that maybe there were those attempts, but let's investigate them too. In the same way we we are investigating any narrative of state capture anywhere in our country, whether be it in ESCOM or anywhere else, and act on any people who might have tried to influence the state negatively. Meanwhile, the ANC has urged government to fast-track the implementation of broadcasting policy review as part of the governing party's media transformation drive. 
Mtembu says the main objective is to ensure that the process to create a diverse broadcasting landscape by way of increasing and accelerating black ownership in the telecoms, paid television and print media space is prioritized. We have also made significant inroads to realize the vision of reducing the significant barriers to entry in the pay commercial broadcasting sector. In this regard, ICASA and the Competition Commission are, pre- are practically looking at the transformatory object-, object to open up pay television to all South Africans and reduce the monopoly in the pay TV space. By 2018, we must have migrated from analog to digital broadcasting. Towards this end, conference should be given the necessary guarantees and concrete action plans. The NC has also announced its intention to pressure government to issue the post bank with a license to allow it to operate as a fully-fledged financial services public entity. There's been an outcry over the slow pace in which the Reserve Bank has been handling the post office bank's application to allow it to compete with major commercial banks. The Department of Social Development has also been accused of stalling the process to have the post office disburse social grants by the beginning of April next year. Mtem will stress the need to expedite the operationalization of the post bank. We further urge government to move with speed to enable the fulfillment of the resolution that the post bank shall be the bank of first choice of government and a primary platform for government and citizens' transactions. The ANC must ensure the implementation of the resolutions to support the post office, including that government business must be availed to post office through intergovernmental framework and not supply chain management processes. The ANC has also joined millions of South Africans in paying tribute to former President Nelson Kholihlata Mandela, who passed on on the 5th of December, four years ago. We remain inspired by Comrade Madiba's life's work, especially instructive to us in the ANC-NEC Subcommittee on Communications, where his words, that open quotes, if you talk to a man in a language he understands, the message goes to his head. If you talk to him in his language, it goes to his heart. Close quotes. This has been and remains part of our guiding philosophy to utilize information and communication technology to build an accessible, caring and inclusive society. The ANC has also lauded efforts by the Telecoms and Broadcasting Regulatory Authority, ICASA, to fight against high data costs, which the party says is stifling economic inclusion of the majority citizens. Tsepo Ikaneng in Johannesburg. Efforts are underway to fix Africa's port and logistics systems. This was the message to delegates at the first terminal operators conference in Africa in the port city of Durban in the Natal province of South Africa. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma was among the keynote speakers who called for regional cooperation in Africa to overcome operational challenges and build the necessary infrastructure to boost economic growth. While problems are bound, one such project is a single rail link between Durban and the Democratic Republic of Congo's mineral-rich Katanga province. Dries Libenbach reports. President Jacob Zuma says it is heartening to see some African countries taking a keen interest in developing their port infrastructure. He was addressing the Terminal Operators Conference in Durban. It is the first time that this conference is being held in Africa. Because of Africa's dependence on international trade, port and transport infrastructure are seen as key for the continent to prosper. Zuma says countries like Angola, Kenya, Nigeria and Mozambique are expanding their port capacity and has the potential to become global players in trade and logistics. He, however, says that over the last few decades, the trend has been for Africa not to invest in its transport infrastructure. Over the past few decades, the sub-Saharan Africa container market has been challenged by the slow development of quality infrastructure. This, in turn, has broadly resulted in underdevelopment 
and long ship waiting times in <clears throat> comparison to other port systems around the world. Transnet Group CEO Siabonga Gama says the African Development Bank has found that many state-run ports in Africa are inefficient, overstaffed and are running at a loss. A consultant for the South African Association of Freight Forwarders, Dave Watts, paints a similarly grim picture of many border posts on the continent. These are some of the cross-border road transport challenges which uh, my colleague has given me actually. I think I'll just run through a couple of them because this is absolutely the truth. Border procedures and processes, unstandard between countries, not convenient for exporters, electronic systems not used properly, no coordinative authority, nobody coordinates things at border posts. Simultaneously, Watts highlighted efficient new one-stop border posts, mainly between Kenya and its neighbours. Meanwhile, Gama says Transnet is positioning itself to be the leading service provider in sub-Saharan Africa and wants to be at the forefront of regional integration. We've done numerous studies in terms of uh, the bottlenecks and constraints which retard uh, the continent and regional economic integration. We must now move beyond uh, the studies and execute uh, the many business plans that lie uh, in many cup, uh, cupboards uh, around the African continent. Transnet's manager in Africa, Mervyn Chetty, has highlighted one such project, a memorandum of agreement between six railway services in five countries to create a 4,000-kilometer-long rail corridor between Durban and Kolwezi in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So for the first time, this continent will have uh, actually one demand analysis done and agreed to on the North-South Corridor by the six uh, railway operators. Uh, we'll have one infrastructure plan uh, coordinated and agreed to, uh, one operating model, so that there's a train that leaves either Richards Bay or Durban and goes into Kolwezi and back without no uh, uh, interruptions in between, and certainly one funding plan. Tim van Kampen from the private port operating company ICTSI has outlined the establishment of the Matada Gateway Terminal on the Congo River that turned a congested logistics hub into a well-run link to the DRC capital of Kinshasa in less than two years. Van Kampen says the DRC's economy is extremely volatile due to its reliance on mineral exports. But he says they have adapted their approach to such uncertainties. I am Dries Liebenberg. In Durban. The head of the organization that promotes South Africa around the world says the country is open for business and that talk of political instability is unfounded. Kingsley Makubele, CEO of Brand South Africa, is in the United States to encourage investment in the country. A Washington correspondent, Kate Fisher, reports. To some observers, this man has the toughest job in South Africa. Thank you very much um, and good morning. As the CEO of Brand South Africa, Kingsley Makubela's task is to promote the country abroad. But how do you do that in the light of domestic, economic and political uncertainty? Concept he says of such concerns are misplaced. The polity of our state is very stable. We don't have instability in the, as far as that is concerned. And we've been trying to explain that people should not misconstrue political contestations to mean instability. Actually, if there's any assurance that people should derive out of that, it's the fact that people can openly contest for political positions. You don't have to resort to arms and do anything. There's an open system. With respect to our economy, today we've realized the third quarter has grown by about 2%, which is good news because uh, the economy has been growing at 0.7, and we hope the momentum that is starting now will be sustained. Certainly, American companies are investing in South Africa. Like law firm Covington & Burling, they've just opened an office in Johannesburg. Their senior advisor for Africa, Whitney Schneidman, agrees the country's future is bright. We take the long view of South Africa. We take the long view of the 54 countries on the continent. And we believe that Africa is really a continent of opportunity. Governance has improved dramatically over the last 20 years. 
um, that the ability of companies to invest and get their profits out has increased dramatically over the last 20 years. You've got this emerging youth population that has tremendous uh, spend, growing spending power. That's an, that's an opportunity. An opportunity that Kingsley Makubela hopes more companies will take. He says foreign direct investment is key to South Africa's future. The South African flag stands proudly inside the U.S. National Press Club and brand South Africa's goal is to make sure that South Africa remains at the front of the minds of Americans and American investors. Kate Fisher, Washington. Our headlines up next with Than Musa. Channel Africa. Addis Ababa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, a military operation in western Cameroon leads to hundreds of people fleeing their villages. Nigerian migrants express relief as they arrive home from Libya, describing the harsh conditions and detention camps where they had been held. And UN President Donald Trump is expected to officially recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. The election campaign has started in Spain's northeast Catalonia region yesterday, with the latest polls showing pro-independence and pro-Spanish parties are neck and neck. It's come over a month after separatist leaders declared independence following a disputed referendum. Since then, the Spanish government has dissolved parliament and taken temporary control of the region. Some separatist ministers remain in prison or in the case of ex-president Carl Puigdemont in self-imposed exile in Belgium. From Spain, the BBC's Europe reporter Gavin Lee has the latest. It's four o'clock in the afternoon and I'm outside Estremera prison. I've had an hour's drive from Madrid and I'm watching on as six Catalan separatist ministers are about to be released. Their supporters are here. There's no sign of families though yet. But I've talked to some of them earlier and they've spoken about how anxious they are to see them freed after a month inside. And a Spanish judge has declared that while they still face allegations of sedition and rebellion for their part in voting for independence, they can be released to campaign in the elections. Well, you can hear the supporters cheering because right now the ministers are finally coming out of prison and they're coming towards the prison gates. You can see the Estelada flag of independence flying from the supporters. They're all wearing black suits, the men, as they leave the prison. Now they're hugging the independent supporters. And we're told that they're going straight to Barcelona tonight to campaign as part of the election launch tomorrow. I've spoken with Marichel Burras. She's fine. She's tired. Marta Pascal is the election coordinator for the separatist party Pevacat, the Catalan Democratic Party of Carlos Puigdemont. She has this strange feeling uh, because she knows that the rest of the government is not free. How do you campaign, given the situation? Well, it's not easy. Maybe the situation every day, every day will be different uh, and we have to just accomplish all, uh, our, our target and our target is just winning the, the elections in two weeks, 21st of December. A lot of people may say you are partly responsible for this, you brought it to the edge and these are ultimately consequences that were bound to happen. I don't, I don't agree. I think that what we have done is just... Uh, we, we had the commitment of making people vote 1st of uh, October. That's what we did. Uh, what we did is what people were asking us to do. While the ministers have been in prison, it's created a movement in its own right. I've come to the beach just outside Barcelona. Right now on the jetty, there are hundreds of people tying yellow ribbons around 
metal railings in solidarity with the politicians who've been in prison. But that's become a problem. Yellow has become a controversial colour because the Spanish Electoral Board say it also could show bias towards the separatist movements ahead of the election. And they've banned water fountains being lit in yellow and official buildings that were lit up yellow. That's been banned too. But what's it like to live under Spanish rule right now? 20-year-old Gemma and Leah tell me how their lives have been affected. Well, sometimes it's a little bit difficult because I think that we have to think about both parts and talk together because I wish someday we could live together uh, in peace and keep calm and think. And resolve the problems they yeah. have. Because right now it's like a little bit of acting, all the things are happening right now with all the politicians. They are not getting into a point. People here are the ones that are suffering all these problems and not the politicians. Both pro-Spanish and independence parties are promising change and the latest polls here suggest the election is too close to call. That report by the BBC's Gavin Lee. United States President Donald Trump is expected to officially recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, alarming leaders in the Middle East and raising concern at the United Nations. The move by Washington could upend decades of American policy and throw hopes of salvaging the two-state solution into disarray. Palestinian officials have confirmed that President Trump informed Palestinian leadership about his decision, a move they say could end the peace process, shown Bryce Peace reports. Jerusalem remains a final status issue, a city of historic significance to Jews, Muslims and Christians, with both Israel and the future state of Palestine claiming at least part of the city as their capital. The UN Secretary-General spokesperson was asked what interventions his boss, Antonio Guterres, was making. Like you, we've seen the press reports. I'm not aware of any direct communication between the U.S. and the Secretariat on this particular issue here in, in, in New York. We obviously await to see uh, an official announcement, uh, but as a matter of principle, the Secretary-General has said uh, that he has consistently warned uh, against any unilateral action uh, that would have the potential to undermine uh, the two-state solution, and we've always uh, regarded Jerusalem uh, as a final status issue that must be resolved through direct negotiations between uh, the two parties based on relevant Security Council resolution. Moving the United States Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem was an election campaign promise of Trump, but it could permanently undermine any hopes of a negotiated settlement between the two sides. Listen to Palestinian presidential spokesperson Nabil Abu Rudaina. President Abbas received a telephone call from President Trump. Uh, our understanding and our position, the position of President Abbas is very clear. If, if the, the American embassy is going to be moved to, to Jerusalem, this is against the international law and this, is, this will be unacceptable from our side. Uh, if this happens... Uh, it would complicate things, it would put an obstacle to the peace process, maybe it will be the end of the peace process. Hopefully the American administration will backtrack from this decision if they are willing to move ahead. The likely move has drawn concern from many Arab countries and the European Union that are largely part of an international consensus on Jerusalem. EU Foreign Policy Chief Federica Mogherini. The European Union supports the resumption of a meaningful peace process towards a two-state solution. We believe that any action that would undermine these efforts must absolutely be avoided. A way must be found through negotiations to resolve the status of Jerusalem as the future capital of both states so that the aspiration of both parties can be fulfilled. There's a sense of deja vu with the anticipated announcement from President Trump Wednesday. He would be bucking international consensus by moving the embassy, just like he did by announcing the withdrawal of the United States from the Paris Climate Change Agreement in June. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pease, in New York.
The UN has called for a humanitarian truce and airstrikes and fighting in Yemen as it seeks to deliver aid to people trapped in the capital, Sanai. As the UN Security Council prepared to discuss Yemen on Tuesday, several international aid agencies chimed in to condemn a surge in violence in the war-torn country and demanded unimpeded access to civilians. Yemen's war has left thousands of dead since 2015, sparking what the United Nations now labels the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The UN has reported a pause in the fighting in Sana'a on a day the slain former president is expected to be buried. But at UN headquarters in New York, concern that desperately needed supplies, both aid and commercial goods, are unable to get into the country due to an escalation in the fighting, as the UK's Deputy Ambassador Jonathan Allen explains. Our message is very clear, it's one we make in public and in private, that all concerned need to ensure the uh, swift flow of humanitarian aid to those in need, in particular through the ports of Hodeida and Sana'a Airport. We need humanitarian access and we need commercial access, and this is critical. Yemen currently has the greatest level of humanitarian need in the world. Over 20 million people, or 80% of the population, are in need of assistance. 10 million, mostly women and children, need help just to stay alive. In addition, cholera has affected close to 1 million, while severe malnutrition is complicating efforts to fight the disease. Sweden's Karl Skow. We would want the Security Council to call for a humanitarian pause and to call for an end to the blockade. Uh, and this includes also the commercial part of this. There is an urgent need for food, fuel, uh, medical supplies. Uh, and so the port of Adeda must be fully functional and, and operational. And as the Houthi rebels celebrated the killing of Saleh, many are warning that there is no military solution to the conflict. It's uh, uh, extremely uh, concerning, the escalation of violence in, in, in Yemen. And, and the brutal killing yesterday or the day before of, of the ex-president Saleh, of course. I think it's important now that we manage to, to halt this escalation. There, as we've said before, there is no military solution to this conflict. It's important that there is not a military logic that takes over and that uh, parties can come back to negotiations and engage with the United Nations. French Ambassador Francois Delattre says recent developments in the country could offer a new opportunity politically speaking. The latest uh, developments in in Yemen uh, create a period of uh, maximal risk, uh, a zone of all dangers, both on the humanitarian and on the military front. Therefore, the first, I mean, our first priority is to silence weapons and to allow a uh, complete an immediate humanitarian access on all Yemen and via all its uh, ports and, and airports. At the same time, the developments of the last days uh, can also uh, help change the equation in Yemen and lead to new opportunities to boost the political process Concerns are widespread that with Saleh's death, the war risks becoming intractable. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pease in New York. The United Nations Environment Assembly is underway in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, with delegates from business, the science community and government meeting to map up the way forward to rid the world of pollution. Many countries in the world have put in place legislative frameworks to address the global silent killer, causing more deaths mostly in the developing nations. For more on this, Channel Africa's Wandile Kalipa caught up with Dr. Mary Goretti Kitutu, Uganda's Minister of State for Environment. When it comes to pollution in Uganda, first of all, we've legislated it. It is against the law for you to go and pollute our environment. That is the beginning point. Now, we also have put in place the institutional framework, institutions that manage those which sensitize and those which do the controls to see that we don't have people who are polluting the environment. So as a country, we've taken on an aggressive, first of all, getting to know where the pollution sources are, 
uh, like the case for Lake Victoria, we know it is mostly from the urban centers and we've identified it in the pollution points. These are some of them industries which we've worked with, like Uganda Breweries is now one of our success stories because one of the pollutants. They have improved on that technology and they are no longer in, I mean, discharging raw waste into the lake. Then we also have pollution mostly from rivers, like River Kagera. That also is a very big pollutant, it's loading a lot of silt into the lake. And this we are working with our neighbors to see that where the source of this silt is stopped. That was Dr. Mary Goretti Kitutu, Minister of State for Environment in Uganda, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Good morning. Oil company Puma Energy Zambia has denied allegations that it is involved in the fuel smuggling activities in the country. On Friday last week, the Zambia Revenue Authority disclosed that it had busted an organized fuel smuggling syndicate through the Chirundu one-stop border post. In this game, the importer allegedly falsely declared the consignment as Jet A1 fuel, which is duty-free when it was in fact petrol and diesel. President Jacob Zuma says it is heartening to see... This was the message to delegate at the first terminal operators conference in Africa, in South Africa's coastal city, Durban. Keynote speakers are called for regional cooperation in Africa to overcome operational challenges and build the necessary infrastructure to boost economic growth. Dries Libenberg reports. President Jacob Zuma says it is heartening to see some African countries taking a keen interest in developing their port infrastructure. He was addressing the Terminal Operators Conference in Durban. It is the first time that this conference is being held in Africa. Because of Africa's dependence on international trade, port and transport infrastructure are seen as key for the continent to prosper. A former food security advisor in the office of the Kenyan presidency has termed the country's agriculture sector a mess. Dr. James Nyoro, who was President Uhuru Kenyatta's advisor, admitted on Monday that the devolution of the sector created confusion with the national and county governments pulling in different directions. Nyoro, who is the current Kiambu deputy governor, says although agriculture had in theory been devolved, the national government still remained with a number of functions, creating confusion of roles. South Africa's ruling ANC is to pressurize government to, to issue the South African Post Bank with a license to allow it to operate as a fully-fledged financial services advisor. There has been an outcry over the slow pace in which the Reserve Bank has been handling the Post Office Bank's application to allow it to compete with major commercial banks in South Africa. Chairperson of the ANC Subcommittee on Communications, Jackson Mtembu, we further urge government to move with speed to enable the fulfillment of the, of the resolution that the Post Bank shall be the bank of first choice of government and a primary platform for government and citizens' transactions. The ANC must ensure the implementation of the resolutions to support the Post Office, including that government business must be availed to Post Office through intergovernmental framework and not supply chain management processes. The US dollar trades at 13.49 in South Africa. It's at 10.11 in Botswana and at 10.24 in Zambia. 74 pence to the British pound, 84 cents to the euro. Gold $1,268, platinum $917 an ounce. 
The price of brand crude oil is at $62.56 a barrel. I'm Tabi Solohoko. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In this hour, it's rugby news first. Springbok 7 star Roscoe Speckman believes there is still a lot of improvements that a Blitzbok needs to go to do ahead of the Cape Town League of the HSBC World 7 Series this weekend. Speckman says there are no easy games and that was evident in their opening game against Uganda in Dubai last weekend. The Blitzbok were eventually able to successfully defend their Dubai title. I think there's a lot of work-ons this weekend and as you can see last weekend it was very a very tough tournament in Dubai and you can see even Uganda was was there up there and they, they put us push us to the limit and I think that's that's the beauty of this seventh game. Every game is hard and no easy game. With the Cape Town tournament voted the best on the seventh circuit and having been sold out a while ago, Speckman says it is special for the defending world champions to be able to play in front of the family and fans. What a fantastic feeling to be home and I'm so excited for the week to start just to get the boots on again and just to play in front of my fans and, and our whole supporters here in South Africa and especially against, like most of us, this is our only tournament where we can play against our with our family, and it's just something special. In South Africa's preparations to the 2019 Under-20 FIFA World Cup and 2020 Olympic Games begin this week at the start of the Kosafa Under-20 Championship. That will be staged in Zambia from today. Amajita have been drawn in a tricky Group B at the regional finals that also include North African guest nation Egypt, Mozambique and Mauritius, and have a new generation of young stars hoping to work their way up the age group levels with the national teams. These include Orlando Pirates forward Lyle Foster, Mamelodi Sundowns defender Tendo Mukumela, Kaiser Chiefs midfielder Ngosing Pilengobo, and highly rated Ajax Cape Town defender Kiambul. Amajida opened the campaign on Thursday against the Mauritians before games against Mozambique on Saturday and a potential pool decider versus Egypt next Tuesday. Only the top team in each pool as well as the best runner-up advanced to the semi-finals. In cricket news, George Hazelwood snuffed out England's hopes of a remarkable second Ashes Test triumph with two wickets in the first 16 balls of the final day as Australia wrapped up a 120-run victory in brilliant sunshine at Adelaide Oval today. England, with six wickets in hand, needed 178 runs to win the maiden day-night Ashes Test and level the series one all, but fell well short of their victory target and will head to Perth 2-0 down with three matches to play. Left arm quick Michelle Stark mopped up the tail to take five for 88. His eighth five-wicket hole in tests. But Hazelwood will also share the plaudits after his early intervention. And finally, with golf news, Malcolm Michelle and Clayton Mansfield made a fabulous start in the IGU Yes Bank 117th Amateur Golf Championship of India. The Gosu de Natal pair both carried rounds of even par 72 in the first round of the 36-hole stroke play qualifier at the Karnataka Golf Association course Bangalore. Michelle and Mansfield will start the final round tied for 7th and 4 of the pace from Indian duo Yuvraj Chandigarh and Jay Gujarat, hoping to emulate Richard Staney and Charles Schwarzel, who won both back-to-back in 2000 and 2001. The pair jumped at the chance to represent South Africa in India. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise in China, the Sawa Malawi opposition MPs boycott parliament and Somalia conference gives hope for a secure future. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzura Magada and Selina Dobong, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or WhatsApp on 277-630-03327. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Maywe with a song titled Nanan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah,